Simply put, humans are social creatures. We need each other to survive. But social connectivity is not quite as simple. It involves diverse and multifaceted feelings, behaviors, and interactions. To unpack the complexity of human nature, we need to start by better understanding our emotions, how they impact our behavior, and ultimately shape the world around us. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, well-being leader for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I read Charles Darwin, The Descent of Man, 1871, and he said, uh, those communities with the most sympathetic members will flourish and raise the greatest number of offspring. Sympathy is our strongest instinct. And when I read that, I was just like, my jaw dropped and I was like, I screamed and ah, I can't believe, because you think of Darwin as saying, it's all survival of the strongest or the most violent. You know, there are parts of the brain that are very old that light up when you feel compassion. I'm here with Dr. Dacker Keltner. He's the founding director of the Greater Good Science Center and a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. His research focuses on the biological and evolutionary origins of compassion, awe, love, and beauty, as well as power, social class, and inequality. So let's let's dive right in. You're a leading voice on on, on emotions and the study of emotions. How yeah. did you get into emotions and why are they important? Oh my God. <laughs> You're asking me to talk about my whole life. Um, yeah, you know, so personally, um, I was raised in this really experimental home with my mom was a literature professor and my dad was an artist. And so they really believed in the passions, you know, the mm -hmm. passions of literature and poetry and uh, painting and uh, but I always had a scientific mind you know I love measuring things and data and statistics and uh, testing ideas and I got interested in emotions um, in that context it was just my parents believed like Rousseau and David Hume and Charles Darwin and others that passion is really the core of our soul is the it's what the moves the mind. And I went into PhD work um, at Stanford, and there it, it was a time when, you know, mid late 1980s, where people weren't studying human emotion. It really hadn't mm -hmm. gotten off the ground. And I went to a talk at the recommendation of my advisor, and she said, You got to hear this guy named Paul Ekman. He's kind of unusual. He's a little bit out on the outside of the field, but he's, he's studying emotion. And Paul, uh, had figured out how to measure facial muscle movements mm. with this system that would allow you to describe emotional expression. And when I heard the talk, I got goosebumps. I was like, <laughs> we can measure emotion, right? And so that got me into it. And then it's been a wild ride ever since. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so I feel like in today's society, we tend to kind of lump emotions into either good emotions or bad yeah. emotions. Yeah. Like it's good to feel happy, it's bad to feel sad. Right. Yeah, that's, you know, that's one of the big fallacies that we are, the science of emotion is correcting. You know, as an example, um, I got to consult on the film Inside Out. Yeah. And the central question that 
they were grappling with is sadness. Mm -hmm. And they, Pete Doctor, the director, wanted sadness to be the main character. The executive team did not because there's this view out in our culture that sadness is bad, it's dangerous, it's, it incapacitates you. And Pete wanted to say sadness has its place. It right. has its wisdom, has its depth. And I think he, he won an Academy Award and a billion-dollar <laughs> movie, and, and that was the genius of the film. And, and the view that we're coming to, Jen, is, is really Aristotle's view, which is interesting, um, and a lot of deep thinkers, that all of the emotions have their place and function, right? And they drive reason and behavior when done appropriately in the right ways. Even like an, an emotion like jealousy, which we're embarrassed to feel jealous about. We wanna kind of shut it down, but in point of fact, what it does is it says, look, there's a potential rival for your love. You gotta be careful, you gotta show that you are willing to sacrifice your self-respect for this uh, commitment, and it and it helps relationships. Um, so we now are viewing the idea that there, yeah, there are good feeling emotions like laughter and contentment and joy and gratitude. There are negative emotions: anger, sadness, jealousy, envy, and the like. But they all help us preserve social relationships in an adaptive way. So, and 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 that is a big change in our culture, right? I remember. Uh, 26 years ago, going to give a talk at Harvard at their negotiation project, and somebody said, like, oh, emotion, we should just check them at the door. Mm -hmm. They don't have a place in, in right. work. And, and, and now we're in a much different place, right, where people realize, like, work's emotional, relationships are emotional. we got to really make the best of them, too. Yeah, and I mean, that was actually a great lead-in to my next question, because I, I, I think we are moving to a different place yeah. in, in the work world, but yeah. I... But in some respects, I mean, that that's still there. You know, yeah. you shouldn't bring emotion into the conference room with you. What, why do you, I mean, where did that, you have to check emotion at the door come from? And, you know, because it, it kind of does still exist in the working world. I think it's getting a lot better. But. Yeah. Well, it comes from, you know, old cultural biases against the emotions, probably gendered biases. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, when work was more male, you know, um, there there may have been this suspicion of the emotions because that felt more female, um, and and an old uh, antipathy toward the emotions that you can trace back in a lot of different thinkers that emotions are disruptive, they're dysfunctional, they're irrational, uh, and there are just tons of new data. You know, like Danny Kahneman's whole idea of of System One, System One, these intuitions, right, that are about emotion, mm -hmm. like. That's a good deal. I feel right about that. Ooh, ooh, that I, my body tells me that's an inappropriate investment or this is, this is going to be a good leader, work colleague. Um, those are fast, old, deep emotional intuitions that are important to recognize. And so, you know, there were these older biases against the emotions in the workplace. Mm -hmm. As work in the past 20 years has, there are more women. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more multicultural. It's more team-oriented, which... Anytime you try to get a bunch of people to do something, right. you're going to have emotion, right? right? And, you're going, ah! <laughs> and so, you know, people, and then, you know, we have to credit Danny Goleman, right? Yeah. yeah. 1996, emotional intelligence, um, EQ is more important than IQ right. in the workplace. I believe that. And that book sold 10 million copies. It changed everything. Right. So it's a different world today. Yeah. 
So tell me a little bit more about the work you did related to emotions on Inside for Inside Out, the movie. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that was one of the great privileges of my career. Um, you know, I've been teaching human emotion for 26 years, uh, you know, textbook and, you know, as this science has kind of come to popular awareness um, that we've been talking about, Jen, and you've asked such nice questions around it. And so uh, it was about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, um, I get a call from Pete Doctor, who's the director of Inside Out, and he was a friend um, through mutual friends and some panels we'd been on. And Pete said, Dak, you know, it's Pete Doctor. I'm like, hey, you know, and he's like, um, and he's just, he'd just done Up, Academy mm-hmm. Award, brilliant movie. And he's like, you know, I'm thinking about, I, I want to ask you about this movie I'm thinking about. And I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> I, you know, maybe he'll ask me to do some voices for it or whatever. You know, I literally thought that. Like, I'm not that good a drawer, Pete. You do have a you great know. Voice. <laughs> Oh, so, you know, and, um, and he's like, He's like, yeah, you know, so it's interesting. Uh, I'm really interested in emotion, and I know you teach emotion. And Pete, I think, had read my textbook and listened to our podcast and on a, or this old iTunes uh, Human Emotion podcast. Um, and I said, yeah. And he's like, and I'm thinking, about, well, I'm thinking about doing a movie about emotions. It's like, wow, cool. And he's like, and it's the emotions that an 11-year-old girl who's going through a lot of stress in her life is feeling. Mm. He had a daughter who was going through that passage. I had a daughter who was going through that. And I was like, Pete, good luck. I'll talk to you in five years. I mean, I was like, can't touch it. Um, and it blew my mind, you know, the, the thing that Pete does at Pixar and what I did there is I'd go visit. And they start with a really small team, a couple people, and they're drawing stuff out, drawing the emotions, which, which emotions. And, and they always consult scientists and historians and people who have studied stuff. And so my first few visits to the small team were things like, you know, how many emotions are there? And I was like, well, Pete, I, my, I think there are 23, you know. And he's like, well, we're thinking about doing a movie on five. And I was like, ah, you know. Um, and what do they do for us? And why do we have sadness? And, um, and what happens to emotions uh, after we've experienced them, do we remember them? Where does that mm. feeling go? Right, and that was grappled with in the movie. Yeah. What happens to a young girl's emotions? And there's this amazing literature on how young girls, when they hit teens, they get really anxious, mm. and, and it just rises precipitously for most young girls. So they wanted the science, um, and I was there just to kind of deal with questions like, how do we remember emotions? That became a big theme. How many are there? They asked me like, you know, what other emotions would you, here's what we're thinking. What other ones would you add? And I was like, you gotta do awe, you know I mean? Riley could like be at the Grateful Dead. And you know, <laughs> that didn't happen. Uh, and, and, um, and then, you know, I'd return every few months. And, and I'll say like, I would get emails from Pete. You know, I remember he was, he was like, Dak, I'm, I'm in Russia, and they have me in conversation with a bunch of neuroscientists. What is the neuroscience of happiness? So fed them, I just fed them science. And then there were strategic things in the movie that we all grappled with. Um, like uh, the, one of the fundamental ideas of the movie is that 
kind of emotions drive reason, mm -hmm. right? So emotions in the control panel. Yeah. We talked a lot about that. Fundamental ideas, emotions have functions. Mm -hmm. And so that's clearly evident in the movie. And then the big one was, you know, it's so fascinating at the middle of the movie and they didn't feel it was working and Riley is about to go on this journey through her mind uh, or Joy goes through Riley's mind. Joy is the defining emotion of Riley, the character. The a lot of people at Pixar wanted it to be with anxiety or fear because mm -hmm. fear is funny. It was Bill Hader. He's funny. Fear is funny. You know, you go, ooh, you know. Yeah. And Pete really thought it should be about sadness, you know, and uh, fought that. And I think that's why it was a good movie. And I provided, they were asking questions like, well, isn't the character sadness really depression? Well, sadness is different than depression. Right, right. Depression is like, you, you have no passion, right? Sadness has this wisdom to it. Uh, so we kind of navigate, use the science to make the case. And, um, and you know, it was amazing when you, when you get to, they have a screen, their first screening is at Pixar. And um, you go, and, it, and it's a firm date. So, you know, there are these layers of animation that they do to the films, multiple layers, right. really complicated. And so parts of the film were still kind of just sketched, you know, but we saw the whole thing and I was just crying, you know, because I was like, you know, the science, what they did to like, hey, we need the emotions. You, you can't, there's no 10,000 studies that could make the case like that. Right. So it was an amazing experience. So do we, and this is probably a silly question, but do we all experience emotion in the same way? Um, I, that's not a silly question. That's the <laughs> hardest question you could ask, you know, is does my joy resemble the joy of, um, somebody in Nicaragua or Beijing? And, um, it is, we, in some sense, we don't know scientifically. What we do know is there is a core to the emotion that's pretty similar in different parts of the world, right? That kind of the subjective feeling state, the, um, the physiological pattern is probably going to be similar. Um, you know, I study um, the vagus nerve, which is this branch mm -hmm. of our physiology that tracks compassion. It's this long bundle of nerves that slows your body down, helps you vocalize and connect. And, you know, we find those reactions are similar in different parts of the world, but um, there's a lot of interesting variation. We feel emotions about different things. Um, so in um, China, where we study awe, um, they, their experience of awe is more likely to be about social, interpersonal things, mm. right? And then there are these um, kind of values that surface during emotions that really differ. So in China, awe is more hierarchical. The U.S., it's more kind of horizontal and connected. Yeah. yeah, so, um, so it's, it's always the case that it's both. For those people that have been taught either by society, family, workplace, um, not to embrace their emotions or kind of block their emotions, what advice do you have for people kind of to, trying to kind of get back in touch with their emotions or um, you know build or build greater emotional intelligence, especially for for leaders to bring yeah. that bring that back into the workplace? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think that there are a few things to really think about. You know, and one is to recognize the wisdom of your emotions. 
So, you know, there's new work coming out of uh, England by Critchley and Garfinkel, and this fits Goldman's thesis, which is buyers and traders in stock market-like settings who are more in touch with their feeling actually do better, mm. right? And they've got these cool data that if you're kind of tracking your emotions and you're, you're listening to them, right? Like, ah, you know, this doesn't seem fair or this is a good thing to invest in. They do better economically. So trust the wisdom of your emotions. Uh, and then, you know, the second big part of the equation is like, is the emotional intelligence thesis that Stefan Cote, other studies of leaders have documented is look and listen to other people's emotions, you know, and, and if you're asking good questions and, and taking other people in, um, you'll know more about how to negotiate. You'll know more how to collaborate. You'll know more how to push off a bully, right? Like, oh, here comes his bullying tactics. I, I can sense they're coming. You'll be able to figure out the sociopath who's mm -hmm. going to screw you over, right? You'll <laughs> sense it in them. And there are a lot of data that align to being open to other people's emotions. And then the, the real challenge for us all is I think the third piece of wisdom is, you know, coming out of the emotional intelligence literature for leaders, it's like, you know, learn the tools to do that work, right? How can you, you know, be quiet and take in the emotions of others? How can you accept hard emotions? Like, God, I'm so mad. You know, <laughs> just accept and, and move on. Uh, and we're learning a lot about how to do that through the mindfulness literatures and, you know, leadership literature. So um, I think it's a, um, you know, it's so interesting, Jen. I mean, when I teach leaders, you know, which I do, I've been doing for 20 years as this shift, cultural shift has taken place. You know, I mean, they, in no matter what the sector they say, you know, like writing code, that was hard or doing biotech or, you know, whatever they're in. But man, handling people's emotions mm -hmm. is the hardest part of leadership. <laughs> and so now we know a lot about how to do that. Right, yeah. I would agree with that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, so I'm gonna switch gears yeah. a little bit, but but also connected. Um, your research on altruism. Yeah. And you know, based on, on your studies, do you believe that human beings are innately good? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, I wrote a book, Born to Be Good, mm -hmm. that kind of presupposes that we're innately good. <laughs> and I, it's interesting. So, so I, I think I, what I'm going to say is we're both. But, but we've seen this really interesting shift in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, 10, 20 years ago, the science uh, that I work in of neuroscience and evolution and emotion was like, you know, maybe... Um, maybe you know the great thinkers were right that people are just basically savages and we need society to rein in our violence and our moral inappropriateness right and that that idea like you know thomas hobbes type you know it's just bloody and tooth and claw unless we have religion and rules and norms really is prevalent um you know um the uh sigmund freud really wrote about two core passions being sex and destruction. And that was it. Um, Immanuel Kant, this really influential philosopher, said that sympathy, you know, what you would think of as a good emotion, is blind and weak. It misleads you. Mm -hmm. Ayn Rand was very skeptical about, you know, she, her whole philosophy was like, it's all self-interest. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing anything other than self-interest, you're a liar. 
or you're bad for society. And we've really, um, in 20 years, come to a different view, at least in terms of what we are in our basic nature. Um, you know, there are parts of the brain that are very old that light up when you feel compassion. That tells us kindness and altruism is rooted in our nervous system, in the mammalian nervous system. 18-month-olds, this is the work of Felix Wernicken, 18-month-olds, when they see a, an adult struggling to do something, will just help out, right? They, um, worldwide, this is 27 different countries, uh, if you ask people to share a resource with a stranger, they don't have to share. They will share 40%, right? So all of these data are saying, there are some pretty altruistic tendencies in there, and then we have to figure out how to make the best of them. Right. So in your book, you coined the term, or I learned the term, um, or the concept, rather, survival of the kindest. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, and, and I am Taking a big believer of, you know, if you can be anything in this world, be kind. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of really struck me. Yeah. Um, can you say a little bit more about what you mean by yeah. that? Thanks for bringing that up, Jen. I appreciate your careful mm. reading. So, you know, uh, that was in Born to be Good, which was like 10 years ago, nine years ago. And, and um, you know, I try to think about like, who are we as a species? And how do we evolve out of um, chimpanzees and bonobos seven million years ago? It's a lot of evolution in who we are. And, and then you, you answer that question by looking at the brain and genetics and nerve and emotion, right? And um, as I was doing the deep research for that book, I read Charles Darwin, The Descent of Man, 1871. And Darwin's really interesting, probably the most influential scientist who ever lived. And evolution is our, maybe the biggest idea that, that people have come up with for you know, understanding humans. And he said, uh, those communities with the most sympathetic members will flourish and raise the greatest number of offspring. Sympathy is our strongest instinct. Mm. And when I read that, I was just like, I, I like literally my jaw dropped and I was like, I screamed and because oh, <laughs> you think of Darwin as saying it's all survival of the strongest or right. the most violent. And what he was, the reason he was saying that, uh, as historians have noted, is he was a really loving parent. He lost a daughter early in life, uh, Annie, and he kind of got overwhelmed by sympathy. He's like, God, what is this passion? And now we know that our altruistic tendencies, kind tendencies, are there first and foremost to protect babies. Mm -hmm. Human offspring are the most vulnerable mammal ever to be born. I like to joke they take seven to 52 years to reach the age of independence because <laughs> <laughs> they are their carrier genes and they take years to, yeah. of protection. Yeah. Uh, and that changed everything. So that... Jan, along with these other findings of like, wow, compassion's in the vagus nerve. It's, there are genetics for it. Kids are compassionate. Babies are compassionate. We are compassionate to strangers. Says maybe we should rethink uh, the survival of what kind of species led to us. So tell me a little bit about how acts of kindness yeah. affect our physiology. Yeah, you know, this, um, this got really interesting and this is what's exciting about neuroscience and physiology is, yeah, you know, I could tell you, um, you know, hey, it's good to be kind. 
and you'd be like, thanks a lot. You know, don't give me the sermon, you know, or whatever. Uh, but once neuroscience gets into the game, you start to get a, a new picture of, of how powerful this is. So a couple of findings blew me away. Um, you know, wow, we share, I call it the 40% rule. Like we're just going to share 40% of a surplus resource with strangers. Um, and, and we're kind and we have these responses. And then, um, along came various neuroscience groups. I think the first was in Oregon of Harbaugh and colleagues where they showed that when I'm given a resource, uh, it activates a little part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is where dopamine receptors are. And when I share that resource with a stranger, it activates the nucleus accumbens. So the brain is saying receiving is the same thing as giving. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty cool. Uh, then along came Fowler and Christakis at the social network level, and they were s starting to find um, this kind of contagious viral quality to sh sharing, which is like if I share with you, and then you go on and interact with Jamie later in the day, uh, you're more likely to share with her, uh, even though I'm not there. And then Jamie is more likely to go on and share with other people she's hanging around. Uh, and that starts to tell us that this state that kindness produces in us spreads in social networks. And that gets really interesting. Um, so there are a lot of these kinds of findings saying kindness and sharing reward circuitry, vagus nerve activation, our lab, better life expectancy, Stephanie Brown. Um, so it really started to, there's been a rethinking of like, how do we think of the basic motives of humans in the mind? So when you're working with leaders or perhaps in your research, have you, do you talk about leading and managing with kindness and what, what's the impact on the workplace? Yeah, I do very explicitly. And, and, you know, I wrote the power paradox in part out of that spirit to like profile how in a lot of sectors today, uh, work is different. You need to collaborate. We've moved from horizontal, from vertical to horizontal mm -hmm. structures more. And there are a lot of data, you know, the Adam Grant type mm -hmm. data, the Stefan Cote type data, um, you know, that, um, and, you know, Jim Collins, I think it is his early book, you know, Good to Great, level yeah. six leadership is like service. Abe Lincoln, you know, the highest rated president of all time of being really service oriented that, you know, in the long run, the legacy of leadership is, is in how intact your social network is mm -hmm. by the end of your career and your time on earth. And that will be strong if you're leading with kindness. Um, it gets into tricky parts. Like, can you be exploited? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. you watch out for that. Do you, always have to be kind and Dalai Lama like well when you talk to the Dalai Lama he's like sometimes you gotta be tough and sometimes it's kindest to be hardest right. and clearest so I do and I, I hope that it will stand the test of time survival of the kindest yeah I really do and and um, they're pretty good data on the thesis there really are that uh, it's hard for our culture to understand because what the what we see is people abusing power right. but that's what power does to people right. it's not how you get it and and so um i think it's worth bearing that in mind 
Yeah, well, you lead right into the next topic on power. So yeah. That's kind of your, maybe your latest area yeah. of research. How, how do you actually research power? I'm fascinated <laughs> by this. Yeah, you know, well, we do it in every imaginable way. So you can, you can do it experimentally and you randomly assign people to like, you're the leader. And they kind of feel that way, and then you watch what they do. You can study natural social groups. So I've studied sororities and fraternities and NBA basketball teams mm. and organizations. Um, you can get out in the world, and you know some of our uh, most well-known work had to do with like, do you drive differently if you're driving a BMW as opposed to you know a less powerful car? Um, there are really interesting social scientists who have studied the legacies of U.S. presidents, right? Mm -hmm. And where it's really like, this is power. We recently published a paper on hedge fund managers, mm -hmm. right? So you can use the tools of social science and say, what is it about when you have, how do you get power? What is it once you have it? What's it do to you? Who uses it effectively? Um, so we, we study power in a lot of different ways. We also study it, um, one of the, my missions in, you know, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher in 1938, said that um, just as energy is the basic medium in physics, that objects relate to each other, transfer of energy, etc., power is the basic medium of human relationships. Hmm. And every relationship is defined by power, right? And I believe that. Yeah. So we study power dynamics in couples and moms and kids and so are there dif different definitions of power or perhaps different perceptions of power yeah i mean that's one of the hardest things and and you know when i wrote the power paradox and you like you just like what are we talking about here right. and and i think it's really i i um especially today right a lot of people out in the world say well power is just money but power is not just money right and you can you can look at some of the most historic events that have happened in human history, and they're done by people who had no money, right? right? Um, my favorite example, which blew me away, is um, Thomas Clarkson in the 18th century wrote an essay. He was 19 years old. He wrote an essay about how slavery, sh slavery should be illegal. Uh, the entire European economy, or uh, big chunks of it, was based on slavery, people start getting wind of this essay and he started popularizing the idea and he changed the economy, right? Mm -hmm. He's totally poor, no political connections and, and it had this massive influence in the world. So people think of power as fame or money or title, but you can critique all of those views um, and, and both empirically and conceptually. And so I like to think of power as your capacity to make a difference in the world, right? Or to alter the lives of other people. That's your power, right? And it can come from money. It can come from a political act. It can come from a piece of art. It can come from, you know, Joseph Nye has, um, at Harvard has made this, he's the person who coined the term soft power. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, a lot of American power doesn't have to do with money or military. It has to do with our culture, right? And in some ways, our movies and our music and Levi jeans and the idea of self-expression embodied in that are the biggest influence we have in the world. So 
I think of it as your capacity to influence others. And, and is that influence um, positive or negative, or it can be both? Yeah, you know, I wish I'd have been, you know, I think that's a great question, Jen, and I, I should have taken a strong stance on that. Um, I didn't grapple Now's with. your chance. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, I think, I think, um, I think it's, I think it's both, right? Mm-hmm. And so Stalin uh, had a, ma- Hitler had massive power, they influenced everybody, they, but they influenced their cultures in negative fashion mm-hmm. uh, in a zillion ways. And, and what you saw, for example, with Germany is the counter response to Nazism, and they became kind of this leading democratic state. Um, Stalin is a little bit different. So I think we have to, I think that's what's interesting is you, you can say, uh, here's, the, here's the influence on the world. And now we as a culture get to engage in the ethical moral debate about is that a positive or negative influence. So I stayed clear of that and I, sh- <laughs> I probably should have been bolder. I think it's interesting that um, there are certain sectors where negative influences of power, the negative power is quickly rooted out mm-hmm. and there are certain sectors where it is entrenched, right? right? And, and it's causing us troubles. So. Mm-hmm. How does power, kind of going back to emotions, yeah. how does power affect our emotions and, and our body? <laughs> <laughs> Physiologically, well, emotionally. Man, you're, you're asking exactly the questions that have motivated my 25 years of studying this. Thank you. So as an emotion scientist, um, it's so interesting, Jen. You know, I, I was studying emotions, laughter and joy and uh awe and um, you know fear and anger and in the science of emotion and I couldn't believe it we hadn't thought about how power influences our emotions right sociology had um, but psychologists had really been blind to it and um, I uh, was doing this research on embarrassment and shame and coding the nonverbal behavior of embarrassment and shame, um, start, eventually looked at its physiology, and I was like, I would watch it, and I'd be like, this is about low power. It's about submissiveness mm. at its core. And there was no theorizing about this. So that actually was the reason I started to study power uh, for 20 years ago. And what we've learned, I think, is a couple of big things about power and emotion, which say a lot about why people abuse power, why suddenly bosses are swearing at their subordinates and you know people are acting out when they have power. And, and one thing we've learned is when you feel powerful, you become more impulsive. Mm. <laughs> and, and we got really excited to show that, man, even down to basic parameters of your emotion, like you just smile more and your voice is bigger and you when you see good things, you desire them more and when you're flirting with a stranger, you feel more sexual desire. It's just like all the impulsive emotions, the volume is turned up. Um, you know, you touch people too much and you just all of these sort of approach oriented emotions are just more intense. Okay. And the, the, I think it just as important a story is when you feel low power, Yeah. you feel anxious and worried and like self-critical and ashamed and your body is stressed out and on cortisol and uh, and suddenly a life of less power is bad news for your body. So 
we started to say, man, the body is impulsive and going after good things when you feel powerful and constrained and self-critical in states of low power. And anybody who's been at work, it's so remarkable. Like, you know, wow, I'm with people who respect me. I feel I'm talking all the time. I'm yeah. embracing them. Yeah. I'm proposing we go camping, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> but I go into a context where I'm the subordinate. And it's like, whoa, I'm sweating and my heart's palpitating and my throat's all dry. That's stress versus kind of approach. And then the other big one, Jen, is, is that power really diminishes your empathy. Mm. And, you know, I mean, Suk Obindir, one of my dear friends and colleagues in Canada did these studies where you could study almost like mirror neurons. Like, do I mirror your behavior? And if I'm randomly put in a low power position, I mirror you. Mm -hmm. I know what you're doing. I can track it. If I'm in a high power position, that mirroring tendency at the physiological level is shut down, right? Mm -hmm. Keely Muscatel, some neuroscientists have shown, if I'm a high power friend, and I'm hearing my friend talk about a struggle in their lives, the empathy networks in the prefrontal cortex are not as active. So it's a tough recipe, right? right. If I'm feeling powerful, I, I feel really impulsive, and the empathy networks aren't constraining my behavior. So, so what are some strategies for <laughs> embracing power, but making sure that we don't abuse power? Yeah, you know... <laughs> You sound like my editor at the Harvard <laughs> Business Review. <laughs> no, he was like, hey, I love your book, uh, but what do we do about this? Dang it. You know, because this, I mean, I mean, you know, Jen, I've been teaching this for 20 years. Like, power diminishes your empathy and makes you impulsive, and then all hell breaks loose. Right. And then, you know, our research, like, um, two of my favorite findings. One is the first, which is if you rant, you take, bring three people to the lab, they do a long, boring experiment. Halfway in, the ex one of them has power, randomly assigned. You put a plate of chocolate chip cookies in front of them. Everybody takes one cookie. And so we ask, who takes that last cookie? High power person. So I was reaching out like, that's my cookie. Uh, and then we coded how they ate, ate their cookie. High power people are eating with like their mouths open, lips smacking, cookie crumbs falling all over their shirts. That's the impulsive tendency. Okay. But, you know, what can we do? Um, I think the great leaders have learned this through trial and error sometimes. Like, wow, you know, I really, that was a bad time in my history of leadership and I offended people. Mm -hmm. I did overly risky stuff. I was, you know, I wasn't, I was tone deaf. I wasn't listening to people around me. And so, you know, I think that the emotional intelligence literature gets really useful. Like, um, you know, Maybe team meetings are best when you let other people lead them if you're the leader. And, mm. they're, and you're, uh, you know, great leaders are known for their respect of people around them. Right. And it's so interesting. They just like to go down to the, talk to the person who cleans the bathrooms and know their name. And um, great leaders practice gratitude. Um, which is a way to build the social network. And then you just got to, you know, um, I think you have to do that good to great work of like, what, what, how are you serving people with this right. work? Right. And um, empowerment, empowering others. Empowerment's the whole, I mean, I could have written, I should have titled my book perhaps, rather than Power Paradox, like, you know, empowered. And just that's the new model of great leadership. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing it in a lot of interesting places. Like, 
you know, I've been lucky enough to um, Pete Doctor on Inside Out. Um, I got to be involved in that movie. I got to watch Pete build a team of 250 people, um, a billion dollar enterprise. At the time, Pixar's reputation was resting on Pete's movie. And, you know, I was around him for dozens of hours and it was like, wow, he empowers everybody, you know. And then the other more recently, like being around, I've gotten to visit um, several practices of the Golden State Warriors and just, you know, know some of their coaching staff and, and then watch Steve Kerr and that coaching staff. And it's like, you know, for people who follow sports, like Draymond Green, has, he's a brilliant guy in terms of defense. And Kerr will be like, let's hear what Draymond has to say about defensive mm. schemes, right? It's not this top-down, right. you know, so empowerment's big. Awesome. You know, as your framing of our conversation suggested, these are new ideas. 50 years ago, if you went into an organization, whether it was finance or a sports team or a nonprofit or a government agency, it was totally top-down. Mm -hmm. It was a white male in the U.S., you know, telling people what to do. That was it. Title-driven. And that is different now. You know, people really are like... Um, you know, we want you to be bold and clear, but we want you to be listen a good listener and right. empathetic. So what I try to do, Jen, alongside these principles we've been talking about, is like try to work in contexts where this knowledge can be useful. Um, you know, uh, one is in medicine, you know, healthcare system, so many demands on medical doctors. Mm -hmm complicated work, lives are on the line. They had a very top-down type structure right. and they're transitioning. A lot of women are becoming medical doctors and just to be part of that conversation to um, expedite that development. So um, it's, and it's always a challenge, you know, you, that's, it's just so humbling to study the abuse of power <laughs> and then you feel powerful and suddenly you're like, you know, saying offensive things about the person next to you or whatever. So it's, uh, it's just a continual struggle and practice. I, in some ways, I think that the most important set of findings in the power emotion literature that I write about in the last chapter has to do with what chronic powerlessness does to the human nervous system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and it is this convergence of the power literature and the emotion literature, which is we start, and this really traces back in some ways to Robert Sapolsky, who's one of my favorite scientists at Stanford. And he showed, like, if you are a subordinate baboon, low in the hierarchy, you're constantly stressed out. You don't develop physically. You're, you have these ulcers. You're, the lack of power costs your nervous system. And um, what started to happen in the science was people were like, wow, you know, shame is an emotion that really at its core is about powerlessness. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, shame is associated with uh, elevated cortisol and increased inflammation in your body's immune system. And if you have chronic inflammation, it's a major pathway to disease problems, poor brain development, etc. When you don't have power, you feel ashamed, you feel self-critical. Um, and what we st have started to paint a picture of is the costs of poverty, right? At the neurophysiological level of cr chronic inflammation, elevated cortisol, 
those processes then prevent the development of your prefrontal cortex. Um, and, and they end up, you know, I um, grew up around really poor people for a significant part of my life and was always struck like, God, they always seem sick and mucusy and, you know, um, hard to concentrate in, in school. And, and that actually is not feeling empowered, that it starts to make your body feel like it's attacked and under threat and the immune system's hyper firing. Um, and I think, I think once you start grasping those findings, it, it's this platform for rethinking what it's really like to be poor, right? It's, it, it, you know, choice and it's that, you know, character are just pushed to the side because your body feels like right. it's under assault. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the science has been useful in that argument. So last and final question, yeah. hopefully this one's a softball. What's your uh -oh. favorite well-being tip? Or what do you do for hmm. your own well-being? Other than study power and emotions and altruism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was lucky in that regard. Well, um, oh, you know, I think that um, is interesting. You know, we... Um, we are, um, I think that there is, um, I, I, it always changes, you know, and 10 years ago, I would have said compassion and mm -hmm. kindness. Mm -hmm. And you have asked so many great questions about kindness. Karen Armstrong, the religious historian, you know, kindness is the glue of our culture. And if it, if it fades, we're in trouble. Um, you know, now and I and I still believe that, but I think that in light of our conversation, to me it, it is um, it, it's listening. It's like mm. you know, just go out into the world and be open to others. Be clear about what your intentions are, but just to listen. And I I think for in particular for people at work, right? If you orient toward just that simple task, mm. you know, you're going to be okay, um, and you'll. You'll sort out like, wow, that person's causing problems. That those are good collaborators. This is where my opportunity is to innovate. Um, and and I, um, I was really struck by a quote um, by Thurlow Weed, who was a journalist when Lincoln was president. And everybody was like struck by Lincoln because he, you know, he surprised the Republican. Uh, um, candidates one on the third ballot or something like that they didn't expect him to win uh he's tall and awkward and poor and funnily dressed and he pulls this off and he, he ends up being our greatest president and thurlow weed who's a journalist said you know that the genius of lincoln was he hurt he uh heard everything that people had to say to him and i think like the idea of just listening with with uh depth is a good start wow what a powerful way to end. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This well, is great. Thank you, Jen. It's been wonderful to be with you. I'm so grateful Dacker could be with us today to discuss well-being. Thank you to our producers and to you, our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. 
If you have a topic you would like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you'd like to share, reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jennifer Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. Be well.